After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi everyone, it's Mind Rolling, and today I'm with my friend, Mirabai Star. Mirabai's been here before. Hi, Mirabai. Hi, Raghu. And, um, but uh, we're going to talk about some interesting things today, mostly around this new book that she has. How new? It's not that new, but... Yeah, November of 2016. Oh my God. Caravan. No, it is not even November of 2016 yet. So that would have been November of 2015. (laughs) It's not out yet. Caravan of No (laughs) Despair. Look for it. (laughs) Uh, You know what I have to say about this book? What? I really want to know. I want to know when you were like in the Bardos before you came into this particular body and incarnation. Did you do a lot of, hey, I need to be getting some of the worst bullshit suffering and just ask for it all just to hammer me for decades? Did you did you do that? I mean, you I mean, it's dramatic. Well, if I did, I changed my mind. I want my money back. <laughs> I was just kidding. I didn't really mean to sign up for all that. Yeah. yeah, several times, I many times I have said that to myself, like, if I made this agreement, what was I thinking in my spirit body? But um, now, I don't, I don't regret or resent any of it. Right. There's a lot of awareness that you've gained over these many years, for sure. And I'm not trying to belittle some of the the dramatic suffering, which uh, actually has turned you into a person that's really been helping people, especially with uh, transformation through illness and death and uh, working grief. with grief and, mm-hmm. and all of it. So from that point of view, it's it's total grace, what's happened to you and your own transformation and then with other people. But still, when I read in the book after, folks, you'll read this book and you'll get what I mean. I mean, we're going to go through just a little of it. See, we, although we don't know each other super, super well, because it's more recent years that we have known each other, because Mirabai lives in Taos, and I go there all the time because of the Neem Karoli Baba Ashram with that beautiful Hanuman Murti statue, which is there, and, and so I've been going for many, many, many years. And Mirabai also has been very involved with Lama. For those of you who don't know, I'm skipping over maybe a bunch of stuff here. Mirabai 
does these incredible translations of Christian mystics, St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila. So uh, those of you who had listened to this podcast, which we, we did when maybe a year and change ago or something like that, right. uh, got some of that uh, from from that podcast in terms of the, the work that she does. And we love the Christian mystics. So and they're very much... A, one of the most outstanding parts of the Western, quote-unquote, bhakti kind of path, really, right? Yeah. Uh, but this book, we have a lot of intersecting lines in our lives, and all the way back to Lama, where, which is the organization that put out Be Here Now originally, with Ramdas, and Mirabai's known Ramdas since she was a teenager. And uh, so there's a... And, a lot of intersecting lines and a lot of people that we know and uh, throughout this book, me reading it, just brought back, you know, a lot of, a lot, a lot of stuff that I hadn't thought about in a long time. Hmm. But um, in terms of the drama of you coming into this life and at this extraordinarily early age, of meeting some of the people, just that part of it, which is nothing to do with the ensuing suffering. Although when you were young, your one of your siblings died at a very young. That was the beginning of it. And, That's right. Yeah, and then this all happened growing up in Taos, right? You grew up in Taos. Well, I lived my first eleven years in New York, so suburban oh, really? Long Island, oh. you know, into a, a middle class Jewish family, but it was during the Vietnam War era, and my parents were very active in the anti-war movement, so even though my first 10 or 11 years were in suburbia, it was anything but a conventional life. You know, people were living with us, and they were, my mother was a folk singer who sang protest songs, Mm -hmm. and it it was definitely not a conventional life even back then, but we moved to Taos when I was 11. And that was very unconventional. Oh, boy. Then started this drama. Now, this this suffering that we've talked about and what you ask for in this life, I mean, they do say you do ask for, or through the guru, ultimately, you get set to go through what you need to go through to become free. That's not always very pleasant. And once we are aware of that and can surrender into that, which is probably the most difficult thing on a spiritual path, but once that happens in Mirabai, you've done that to a large degree. Um, you were really clunked over the head to get there, that's for sure. Uh, but just in terms of growing up as a you know, pre-teen into a teen with the likes of... who of, Trungpa Rinpoche passed by, right, one time? Mm-hmm. Tell that story. I mean, mm-hmm. those are the, the little tidbits like that are really mind-blowing. Well, the the school that I went to, I mean, full disclosure, this alternative school, in those days they called them free schools, um, was taken over in like 1973 by the Lama Foundation. So Lama was running the school. And so Lama was a place of, of the meeting of the ways. So teachers came from all over the world and all spiritual traditions through Lama Foundation to to teach. And they, because of Lama's connection with the school, they almost always passed through the school. Some of them actually taught there, like the the person who we now know as Pema Chodron was mm. was Deirdre back then, and she was the social studies teacher. And Natalie Goldberg was our English teacher. Natalie is 
is largely responsible for me becoming a writer. And who else? So Ramdas, of course, would pass through the school. Haridas Baba. Um, mm. And we had a very strong connection with Taos Pueblo because we were there in Taos. So the elders from Taos Pueblo spent a lot of time at the school because they they somehow resonated with the whole back to the land hippie movement. It really felt like these Anglo, these young Anglo people coming and raising their families and raising their food and living without running water and electricity and trying to tune into the spirits of the land were closest to what, what they were about. So they really became kind of advisors and elders for a lot of the, the hippies and Taos in, in that era. But yes, um, Trump, Pema brought Trumpa. And he read to us, I remember sitting around the Kiva fireplace. We were in this old, our school was in this old rambling adobe hacienda. And it was cold and dark and and it was winter. And we all huddled around the fire and he read us tales from Tibet. You actually, can you recall the moment? I mean, yeah, recall, oh, of course. Yeah. It's, it was really visceral. I mean, we took it for granted that all of these sages... Um, were part of our lives. And I, and I really think it's why I am the way I am. And what I mean by that is a Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, Sufi, pagan who loves Christ. It just was all natural to me to say yes, say yes to the presence of the sacred wherever I encountered it. Mm. Mm. And then you're 14 years old, and, and you're reading Hazrat Inayat Khan, Carlos Castaneda, Castaneda. You're reading the Heart Sutra, meditation, etc., etc. Didn't everybody? <laughs> I wanted to, but I had no idea even where to find that. So instead, I was just a depressed shit mm. My, at that age. I was horrible. It was a horrible time. Mm. So you got this presented to you. What was that like? You know, my first love, uh, my first boyfriend died when I was, I just, we had, I had just turned 14. He was about to turn 14. And it really blasted open the gates of my heart, not in, in a good way. It broke, it broke my heart open. And what came flooding into that space, into that shattered space, was this intense longing for God. And so that's, it's so, so really the doorway for me to the sacred has, has often been through great loss, you know, probably starting with my brother when I was seven. And that's when I think I first, I had my first whiff of the fragrance of the great mystery. And it was terrible and it was also beautiful. And of course there was no language for it. And then later when Philip died, seven years later when I was 14, that that opening became a chasm. And so I was really vulnerable. I was vulnerable to, uh, to predators, and that, as you know, happened, and I write about that, spiritual, sexual predators. But I was also vulnerable to the breaking in of, of the divine and the per to permeate the burned down landscape of my soul, and it lit me on fire actually, and that fire has never left me, even though sometimes I go into deep states of quiet and emptiness, 
it's not always like this devotional explosion, but that's my default is to go to that place of unbearable longing and exquisite connection. I'm going to read something which struck me as an important thing, actually, uh, for people to hear. Throughout those early years, I cultivated my invisibility, determined to eradicate my ego. The fact that I was too young to have had a chance to develop an ego escaped me, as did the fact that what little sense of self I might have managed to pull together was annihilated with Philip's death when I was barely 14. There's another side of what what you're just talking about in relation to that, but that is a very, very important thing. For There's many, many people that I've met and that I have known, their whole concept of being on the spiritual path and eradicating the ego, when they maybe started a little young without one, and... It, it just completely, absolutely convolutes the uh, potential of, of freedom, really. It's a very, very tough thing. I think this little statement and your realization of it is, is crucial and important. Uh, well, I lost no time making up for that and developing quite a robust ego, which I'm now... Um, in a new relationship yeah, with. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to go back to annihilation. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny because I'm at this place in my so-called career as a writer, as a speaker, as a teacher, where um, I'm getting a lot of attention, and you're supposed to kind of cultivate that in order to to share your presence in the world, to share what you have to give. So I'm in this in this weird place in my life. This is my my inner edge where I'm developing a platform. And working on cultivating the no self at the same time, and it's really schizophrenic. Because <laughs> I don't want to be the Mirabai Star Show. Because all my training was was that was about getting out of the way. Whether that's healthy or not, that conditioning is so strong. So to be doing, to be building a platform and working on um, disidentification with the small self at the same time, is, is really um, an interesting and painful tension in talk, my life right now. You should talk to Ram Dass, yeah. who was, you know, he dealt with that very strongly for decades. I really need to, yeah. And you know, uh, God forbid anything like this should ever happen. That I should get stroked? Him. Yeah, God forbid. But in his particular case, I mean, that eradicated that part of him, you know, to the point where further than that, everything he had been talking about the way it is, he pointed to at that time. And then after the stroke, he became more of it, not pointing to it. It's like, that's what that his book, Be Love Now, is really all about. It really is. And for me, as you know, and that's what this book is about, the Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation. Um, my first book, the translation of Dark Night of the Soul by the 16th century Spanish mystic St. John of the Cross, that book was birthed into the world the day that my 14-year-old daughter Jenny was killed in a car accident. And and that was my that was my fire of 
I don't know what ragu, but it's a fire that's that still burns um, and is still transforming my being in in mm. really radical ways. I don't know why sometimes it takes it takes a stroke or it takes the death of a child to to create um, that kind of cataclysmic soul change, mm. and it doesn't have to. I mean, for those of you who are listening and are going, I'm not me, please. <laughs> does it have to take that? Of course it does not have to take that. Was Ramdas so unconscious? No, he was doing a pretty good job of being a conscious human being. Uh, I think I was doing my best. Um, it's not like these are, are... I think sometimes people think that when a huge tragic event happens, it's because we needed such a strong wake-up call because that's how fast asleep we were. But I don't think that's a fair equation. Maybe it's more like what you said at the beginning, Raghu, where we signed up for the steep path in this lifetime. You know, in Ramdas's case, though, around this stroke, he let that body go. I don't know if you were seeing him around you yes. know, before that. Yes. And how overweight he was yes. and how he was not watching diet he was not doing anything he was he there was some i mean karma is karma but we all have opportunities to take one path or another and this so this very different from what happened to, to you mm -hmm. and what has happened uh he in the beginning after the stroke was walking around going Fierce grace, right? The movie and everything, that whole term that developed. Yeah. So this kind of suffering is grace. And he walked around saying, you know, Maharaji stroked him, and now he has the grace to be able to be more of who he is, something like that. Do you know this story? Yeah. He went to India, mm -hmm. and he met with Siddhima. Mm -hmm. Go on. And uh, he told her that, and she said no. Maharaji, Maharaji wouldn't said, do that. He's not giving anyone strokes. Right. Right? What are you, crazy? He, I'm he sure she didn't you. say that. What yeah. she said, and she just said, no, it's nature. The The grace is that you realized you were able to, ha you know, he gave you the realization to be able to, to handle it, to deal with it, to know, you know, his thing now of loving awareness. That's beautiful. That's such a beautiful way. So he turned the whole thing, turned around. So there is, it's karma, and, and we do these things, and we take actions that we have to pay for, you know, all of us. And sometimes they're not very conscious. So it's a little bit different than, than the tall order that you rolled up before you came into this body. <laughs> and the next one was this this guy, Randy. I mean, so briefly just say, obviously, you were taken advantage by, as you put it, a you know a real predator. Yeah. And we've read this story a lot in many cases, on, you know, of people on the spiritual path. Yeah. But briefly, just tell a little bit about what in the heck were you thinking? Well, right. Well, you so were fourteen, so you, I wasn't you know. thinking, and I yeah. yeah. Uh, and Randy Sanders is not his real name, by the way. Well, there, you know, good. I had to change protect a few names. Yes, or well, guilty. the guilty. Yeah. He actually died um, mm. when I was just almost finished writing this book. Oh. Yeah, it was really interesting timing. Um, so I was, yeah, I was fourteen. So Philip had just died. What was going on in my life 
was relevant because my mother had recently left my father and had moved in her lover. My father was an alcoholic and my mother's new lover was an alcoholic. Of course, we didn't notice things like that then because it was just everybody was looking for the altered states of consciousness wherever they could find it. I mean, my parents were very much involved in the whole counterculture um, movement, and that included all, all kinds of substance use, both addictively and also as... Uh, spiritual exploration. I will give them that, that, but anyway, so my home life was really not happy or comfortable. And, and I was this kid who was really drawn as we've already established to altered states of consciousness that were not drug induced, that I, I was drawn to meditation and to yoga and to spiritual teachings. And my family was so anti religion that Anything that looked religious to them, they'd make fun of. So I was not at home in my family, even though I loved them very much. Um, and my first love was dead, and I was grieving, you know, with all my might. And so I was in this really vulnerable state when I met Randy Sanders. And he came to Lama uh, and, and then decided that he was going to offer a high school program to the, there was a group of us that was kind of aging out of the alternative school. And we were 12, 13, 14 year olds. And he would create a little, a little high school program for us. And so he did. And he, uh, just sort of latched on to me. Okay. So what happened was that we wrote this musical play about the life of the, of the 16th century poet Mirabai, the ecstatic, um, devotional poet in love with Lord Krishna, the God of love, right? And I was cast as Mirabai, mm. and so I played Mirabai, and then we did the we did the play at the Lama Foundation in this big, beautiful geodesic dome made of adobe and, and wood um, in the spring. And Philip had recently died, and I was in this very broken, open state. And I came onto the stage, and Mirabai kind of came through me in a really visceral way. And Randy Sanders, who I'd never met, was in the audience. And after that, he just sort of latched onto me and and said, you are brilliant, you are beautiful. In fact, you're probably the incarnation of the Divine Mother. And I am here. In fact, I have been born to awaken you and to cultivate this in you. And the, the, the thing is, you just have to do everything I say and never question it. And you I hadn't wanted, read any books on cults or anything? Oh, my like God. <laughs> I was so hungry to be enlightened. And if I got to be the Divine Mother on top of it, that would, cool, that's a yeah. big bonus. Yeah. I was ready. So I did whatever he said. And then... And then um, I ended up uh, marrying him several years later. He was married at the time. He was married with two children my age. So at, we had a secret affair for seven years. I wasn't allowed. So I was 14. So 14 to 21. I was not allowed to have a relationship with anyone else. And I wasn't allowed to tell anyone. It was, was top secret because the universe was held together in many ways by the power of our love. And that was predicated on this understanding that nobody would get it, and and they might. Is this what he was saying? Jeopardize to you? it? Yeah. He was saying the universe is being held together. Yes. 
by the power of our love. Yes, and nobody would get it. God. In fact, they could they could seriously damage it, and then there would be big cosmic trouble. So, um, yeah, so I, I kept that secret. And then at, when I was 21, we pretended that um, there I, I, I was a grown-up now, and we just found ourselves in love with each other because we had this deep heart connection all those years. But no, that's, you know, that's not what, what was happening. So we, um, he left his wife and we got married. And what else, Raghu? And then we were <laughs> married for X. Uh, how, I, after reading the book, I couldn't quite understand at 21, at, by that time you might have had some yes i did awakening about this person why would you go on and from there that i don't one know I could... a, a psych a psychologist would probably be able to come up with an analysis and i certainly have done a lot of therapy but you know there were various reasons the the brokenness of my parents you know my parents were still grieving the death of my brother in in many ways during that that period and they were not able to do that in a conscious way. Um, alcoholism in the family. I don't know. I, I'm a four in the Enneagram. We think we're really special. I'm also a, a Taurus astrologically and we're really like fiercely loyal. And I was determined to make this okay. Like this was my destiny and I was going to make the best of it and I wasn't going to give up. And the conditioning, I mean, he he, it was sort of a Stockholm syndrome, mm. you know, where he got me at such a vulnerable time in my life that I, I ended up becoming really emotionally dependent on him and on his approval, even though I had no um, physical attraction. He was 25 years older than me and not at all, in any way my version of, of, you know, a romantic partner. But I was resigned and I was stubborn it took a really long time. It took falling in love with someone else actually to finally set me free. I was actually always falling in love with other people throughout that time. But so when we got married, he, before we got married, he made it very clear he didn't want to have a baby. And when I was 16, I dropped out of high school and part of all this Michigas. I, I didn't, I didn't finish high school. I got my proficiency diploma and started taking college classes at 16 at a community college. I left home in Taos and ended up in Northern California with him and his family. And I started taking college classes. And one of the classes was called future futuristics. And it was this sort of interdisciplinary course of biology, psychology, philosophy, economics. And in that class, it, you know, this was the seventies and the hot button topic was overpopulation. And the environment was, was, you know, seriously deteriorating before our eyes. And the climate crisis is nothing new, in other words. And I decided then and there that I was not going to bring children onto this planet, not only because I didn't want them to have to face the, the um, ter terrible uh, situation that was coming, but because I didn't want to contribute to overpopulation. So I already had made a decision not to have biological children, but we got married when I was 23. By 25, I started burning for babies. And finally, when I was 28, we decided that we would adopt. Um, he, he agreed to that, but they had to be older children already in school, so that he didn't want to deal with babies. 
and older children means children that have been in the foster care system mm-hmm. and children who have been in the system are there for for reasons usually of se- severe loss trauma abuse neglect um and so we took on a couple of really challenged mm. girls again part of the whole agreement i made before. with the universe yes yeah uh and uh I'd like to just jump to you finally got rid of him. Yes, I did. And obviously that was a whole trauma. And you say here, when I left Randy Sanders, I fired God. Every aspect of my spiritual life had been shaped by my association with an imposter. Suspicious of anything resembling an organized belief system, all the teachings I had once embraced... I now dismissed as artifacts of magical thinking. My parents, Freud and Marx, were right. Religion was the opiate of the masses, and my addiction had almost killed me. It was time to sober up. Well, that leads probably... That's Is that not the place where it starts to lead you to the dark night of the soul, which is what I wanted to really expand upon. Right. Oh, that's great, Raghu. That's a good passage to pick. Yeah, the dark night of the soul, according to St. John of the Cross, who coined that term, the Spanish mystic, wasn't about having a hard time, you know, navigating a breakup or or something like that, um, or an illness. These things can be occasions for a dark night, but a dark night is a really private, internal, spiritual crisis and the markers are that the the things that used to sustain our spiritual lives begin to dry up and feel really meaningless and empty and that and that is a really fruitful spiritual state when we no longer cling to those belief systems or those feel good spiritual practices that used to get us high and when all of those things kind of disintegrate we're freed from those attachments and can have a direct experience of the divine. Mm. Well, certainly the, this kind of loss and, and realization of all those years being with an imposter would, and, and then just emptying yourself out of everything. Actually, the only thing you say you did not empty yourself out of was a relationship with Neem Karoli Baba. Right. Who you had met through Ramdas, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. And, and had been my go-to spiritual connection since I was, yeah, 12, 13, mm. 14 for sure. But still, so in the book, um, just wanted to read something. When, um, going through a really rough time, it might make her grow and galvanize and appreciate life more. And I think you're, this is talking about... Uh, St. John of the Cross, his guru, so to speak, was Teresa, right? Yeah, Teresa of Avila was really John's mentor, spiritual mentor, but I think it was kind of um, mutual. Yeah. Um, So uh, just talking about what John of the Cross meant when he coined the term Dark Night of the Soul 500 years ago, what he was referring to as an intensely personal, often invisible, spiritual crisis that actually turns out to be a great blessing. 
It may at first mimic a state of existential angst, when life drops its disguise and religious beliefs seem inadequate to address the nakedness, just what you said earlier, I fired God. Right. Um, but it is also infused with a quality of yearning, a quiet resonance with the deepest chords of the human condition. It is a gift that can only be given when we get out of our own way. This ability to surrender is in itself an artifact of the kind of spiritual maturity very few of us ever reach. That doesn't mean we earn our dark nights through our own efforts. What it means is that we have allowed our cup to be shattered and that the Holy One may or may not come along and restore it with light. It means that we have said yes to annihilation without any expectations that we will be resurrected. That's a very difficult surrender state. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and so sometimes it really does seem to take a catastrophic um, shift in our life, maybe not a tragedy, but something really cataclysmic, let's say, for us to be able to let ourselves down into the arms of the mystery. To just say, yes, thy will be done. Not, thy will be done if you then later make it right, God. Yeah. Very, very few people get into to the wholeness of that place. I think that's a, that conceptually is extraordinarily difficult. But when you're so stripped, when you do experience a profound loss, you're so stripped that you don't have the energy to, to fight it anyway. So it's not like I was doing something so spiritually um, um, skillful. In fact, you know, there's, the, there's a chapter in there called Heartfulness Practice. I think it's the very first chapter in part three. This, is, this book has three parts. And, and what I realized was that my willingness to show up for the experience of losing my daughter, of really being present with, with that experience as much as I possibly could, not turning away from it, wasn't a matter, as I wrote in that chapter, of flexing my spiritual muscles and saying, I can do this. I can do this hard thing of being mindful. Or as Stephen Levine, the, the late, great Stephen Levine said, keep your heart open in hell. I wasn't doing that to prove myself spiritually at all. What I was doing by being present for my experience of losing Jenny, for, for my grief, is I was dedicating my consciousness to her. It was my love for her that made me show up for the experience of losing her. Like I didn't want to turn away from her. I want for her sake. It's like, I'm, I've got this, Jenny. I am going to sit in this fire because I love you. I'm not going to turn away. It was love that, that made me show up for that annihilating experience. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. You know, I'd like to, um, you have given me this, uh, your first book, Dark Night of the Soul, St. John of the Cross, and and I did go through some things that uh, I thought would be good to point out, um, especially for people who are not familiar with, and I'm not that familiar 
with him, so I kind of appreciated it. Um, let me look at something I can just refer to. The Dark Night of the Spirit is an inflowing of God into the soul. Now, this is your translation of the Spanish of the original St. John of the Cross, correct? Yeah, it's yeah. not my words, it's his. Yeah. That there is. The, the, <laughs> the dark night of the spirit is an inflowing of God into the soul. It purges her of imperfections. Now, you purposefully used her. He does. He does. This is the convention really? in Spanish mysticism is to use the feminine for the soul and hmm. the masculine for God. The soul is, is the lover, which is feminine, and God is the beloved, which is masculine. Hmm. That's the way the Spanish mystics wow, frame it. It purges her of imperfections. I would have said it. Yeah. To me, it's an it. Yep. Uh, of, but who's going to... I'm going to counter John of the Cross. I don't think <laughs> Go so. Go right ahead. Uh, of imperfections. It purges her of imperfections, natural and spiritual. Contemplatives call it infused contemplation or mystical theology. This is where God transmits his secret teachings to the soul and instructs her in the perfection of love. She does not have to do a thing, nor will she understand a thing. I love that. Infused contemplation is the wisdom of the loving God. It both purges and illumines the soul, making her ready for the union of love. The same loving wisdom that purifies and enlightens the blessed spirits on other planes of existence purges and illumines, illumines the earthly soul now. This is like, uh, it's almost like Tulsi Das kind of yeah, stuff, right? It's, it's very... Bhakti poetry, devotional poetry. It is, and it gets way juicier than that. Like John of the... This is his prose treatise, The Dark Night of the Soul, but it, this came out of a very... Um, juicy erotic love poem really? an eight stanza love poem on a dark night inflamed by love longing Un undetected I slipped away my house at last grown still and it's all the whole poem it's it's very much like the song of songs which was John of the Cross's favorite scripture in fact he loved it so much that when he was dying and the priest came to give him last rites he said he said don't use I, I take that away. I want, I want you to read to me the Song of Songs. But it's about the secret rendezvous of the lover and beloved in the garden. The lover slips away from her darkened house in the middle of the night and and rushes in disguise, rushes into the arms of her lover who's waiting for her in the garden. And this this prose treatise was he only wrote it because he was asked to explain how this poem was a metaphor for the soul's journey to union with God. Mm. But he's so he his metaphors are they're dripping with sensory imagery. He's very much like Rumi. That's by the way how I found John of the Cross was that when I first read my first John of the Cross poem, I was already um, in love with the poet Rumi. This was before Coleman Barks or. Robert Bly had translated him so beautifully and accessibly, but he reminded me so much of Rumi. I had to keep, uh, I had to keep going. I read him originally in Spanish. It took me a long time—twenty years—before I began to translate him myself. Hmm. 
O spiritual self, when you see that your desires are darkened, your inclinations dried up, and your faculties incapacitated, do not be disturbed. Consider it grace. God is freeing you from yourself. He is taking the matter from your hands. No matter how well these hands may have served you, they are still clumsy and unclean. Never before could you labor as effectively as you can now when you put down your burden and let God take your hand and guide you through the darkness as though you were blind, leading you to a place you do not know. Who cares how good your hands and feet may be? That's great, great. Yeah, it's beautiful stuff. You know, there's his poem, Living Flame of Love, for which he also wrote a long, complex prose treatise. Um, I hadn't, tra- I had not translated that. I, I did translate a collection of his poems for Sounds True, but I didn't do Living Flame maybe because I thought it was so classic and it had been done so well. But when Ramdas wrote Be Love Now with Ramesh Ramesh they asked me if I would translate that poem f- for the book. Oh, really? So in the first few pages of Be Love Now is my only existing translation of that poem living flame of love but it's another that poem is another expression of the same fire of annihilation that we that is the medicine you know the the rumi often talks about the longing that is the is the answer to the longing and john of the cross speaks about the fire that is the healing of of the soul that is the relief of the soul he calls it this beautiful wound Mm, right. Um, let's talk about sacred unraveling, which we talk about in holy despair. Actually, in the very beginning, in the very, very, mm-hmm. very beginning of the book, and, and I thought this would be good to to really expand upon. Um, it's in the it's in the prologue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, transformational power of radical unknowing and the sacred unraveling and holy despair let's talk about the start transformational power of radical unknowing i think that's there's a lot of fear for people around the idea that we cannot know anything and of course many people we were just talking earlier today about the whole advaita movement and how that is so non-dualism is so popular in the West. Uh, the the books that the spiritual books that sell the most are non-dual books, and there's a real wanting to know, quote unquote. So uh, it's interesting to address it with this uh, radical unknowingness. Talk about that. Well, you know, according to John of the Cross, the the impulse to know is taken from us in a dark night of the soul. Like we, the concepts don't hold up. It's as if we've built this scaffolding of, of spiritual uh, thoughts and we've built our life uh, on that framework and it just comes tumbling down in a dark night of the soul so that knowing becomes irrelevant. There is nothing to know. We, we know that we know nothing. And that is the beginning of a very blessed state. But it, I think, Raghu, that 
Yes, it's scary, and John of the Cross calls it the most harrowing thing of all. Like the Dark Knight, according to John of the Cross, has two phases. The first one is sensory, when our felt experience of the sacred dries up, and we can't, we, the things that used to make us feel blissed out and connected no longer do. That's the first part of the Dark Knight. He says the truly harrowing and also authentically transformational part of the Dark Knight is when all of our concepts come undone. And yes, it's difficult and it's painful and it often feels like a crisis of faith. There's there's another part of us that I believe, and I think John would, would agree, is thrilled by that, has longed for that state of radical unknowingness. I don't... I don't want to have it all figured out. I want to see what is, what is real. And and we have a curiosity about the mystery. And that when we are freed of our artificial security and thinking we have it all figured out, there is a sense of relief often. I mean, I had that feeling, and, and I think a lot of people do, secretly would love to get to that stripped-down state where we don't have to know and we can just be in wonderment. Everyone gets to it at their last breath. Right. One way. And I, and I imagine my last breath, in my last breath, there will be that sense of childlike wonderment. Like, wow, mm. now what? What is this? Yeah, that's like Aldous Huxley when he was dying. Yeah. I mean, he he was taking acid a lot. Yes, Ram Dass was. was friendly with him. And he he lost his ability to speak, really. All he could do was look at everything he looked at, and he just went incredible or unbelievable. It was He got to that place where yeah. there was no, no possibility of rational fathoming of anything. It was all just absolutely brand new just moment right wow one of the most brilliant minds of the century yeah just awe holy awe yeah exactly holy awe um well again i think we should talk a little bit about this because this is part and parcel with making friends with the mystery is part and parcel with that is unraveling and so to me your life and, and since we're talking about your life in this book which you describe there is a way and you know there's a lot, that's why i said this whole thing with randy boy that went on for a long time that unraveling was that must have been tough and randy sanders did you notice that i never just called him randy right I always called yeah. him by his first name and last name randy yeah. sanders right but uh, the unraveling... Took a long time, yes. Yeah, took a long time. But did you have points at which you felt that was you were aware of the unraveling and that awareness allowed it to actually burn itself out, even if it took a long time? I mean, with, with this, uh, this um, fake guru, imposter guru character, it sounds like you may not have had that awareness for a long time and you were caught. I think I always had the awareness that he was a charlatan. Really? 
yeah, from the beginning. But somehow I felt that I had to go along with it, hmm. that it was like this destiny, this car. He, he conditioned me to believe that. But the, how did he get me to believe that? How did he condition me? What was the in, the vulnerability? Was that, um, here's what I think it was. About a year before, bef- Philip hadn't died yet, um, before I met Randy Sanders, I had been slipped LSD when I was 13 years old mm. at, a, at a party and at a commune in the mountains of New Mexico. And I didn't know what was happening. And I, n- nobody ever knew. I mean, how nobody knew, I, I can't even imagine now. It was so obvious. But they didn't know. And so I thought I was going crazy. And I was having the this incredible inner experience. And this went on for like a year or more. Well, it went on for many years. And that's in the book, that I would slip back into um, a hallucinogenic state at the mm-hmm. drop of a hat. So it plagued me. And that first year, I was almost always tripping. I was, I was almost always in a psychedelic state of consciousness. And it was really scary and difficult. And when I met him, we got into a conversation. And I hadn't told anybody about the state of terror that I was living in inside my head because I couldn't explain it or express it. And it felt, I was almost ashamed of it. And we had a conversation one day and we were alone in the, in the school library, which was a little Hogan. And because of a few things he said to me, I felt like I could trust him. Mm. So I told him and he seemed to totally get it. And that was the Mm. hook. Wow. I wasn't alone in this terrifying state of consciousness. Mm. Not only was I not alone, but he blessed it. He said, this is proof of your spiritual um, mastery, basically. I was like, oh, good. This isn't a curse. This is this wow. is a blessing. Mm. That's uh, the level of manipulation there is so wild. Yeah, it really worked. It's just unbelievable. Uh just shooting forward a little bit, uh, well, uh, one thing around that's uh, in the book that you talk about that I, I also think is, because we talk a lot about it, I talk a lot about it uh, on Mind Rolling and uh, and then in my other hat with Ramdas and the work we do at, at retreats and so on, is I love suffering, it brings me to God, which Maharaji used to tell us. And uh, Ramdas has talked about this too, and it's very, very difficult to just say that without, I think, a little bit of a framing. And you do that quite well in the book, because uh, people going out and looking for, <laughs> okay, I guess you know, they're, I'm open. I'll I'll turn everything around and see it all. You know, it's all in your head. It has nothing to do with any reality. But tragedy and trauma are not guarantees for a transformational experience. They are opportunities. That's, to me, one of the strongest um, quote, shall we say, from the book. Mm. Talk about that. Yeah, I think you, everyone listening um, has noticed that we don't have to go looking for painful experiences. This is inherent in the human condition. But if we... And the, and all the great mystics teach teach us this uh, great lesson. 
But life teaches us this lesson too. If we gently and lovingly toward ourselves, with mercy toward ourselves, say yes or assent or consent to the fullness of what is, which includes sometimes painful experiences. And if we soften and show up for the experience in as undefended a way as we can possibly manage, then it's as if the space in our souls opens to make room for holding what is. And that's when a transformational encounter can, can unfold. So I have gotten to the point where I, I am cultivating that ascent with even the small disappointments, you know, in life. So I'll have a misunderstanding with someone that I love. And instead of immediately rushing into that experience uh, with an urge to fix it or rushing away from that experience with the desire to get away from it, my first impulse has become to just like be with it for a minute and breathe into it and, al- and allow it to reveal what it, it has to teach me. So it's not like I'm, I'm looking for pain. I'm not a masochist. In fact, I love pleasure. I love feeling wonderful. And in fact, Raghu, I would say that one of the greatest blessings that these harrowing life experiences has given me is an enormous capacity for childlike delight and joy. I mean, the the smallest things thrill me and make me so happy. Sitting with you today and singing kirtan in the garden with dogs all around us, in our laps while we're singing to God, my my, um, ecstasy is, is indescribable. I don't think I had those heights and depths of delight and joy in my life before I was hollowed out by the fire of unbearable anguish. And everybody, you'll have to read the book to really get uh, more of an idea of, of some of what Mirabai has gone through in her life, and particularly around the uh, death of her daughter. That's uh, an occasion that, of course, uh, beyond traumatic, um, I didn't know those details. And, and as I said, I've known you for some time, and I knew the general outline, and I remember it happening, but uh, I did not know those details, and I did not know how you were able to sit with that for those many years after and you're still this isn't something that goes away you're That's still right. sitting with it but but certainly the the immediate after i mean immediate years aftermath the ability to really understand how to uh, to bear grief and how to soften in the way that you're speaking of that you just spoke of is an important important uh, uh, teaching for everybody but once again, I have to emphasize that it wasn't a matter of spiritual skills, of, of di- even spiritual discipline. It's about love. It's not about trying to do this hard thing with, with my, my teeth clenched. Mm. It's, about, it's the opposite. It's about bowing down in love. There's no other 
choice to turn away would be unloving is how it felt for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the love is the alchemy. And the book closes with bowing down. Yes, it does. And uh, so Mirabai went to India. How many years after? It was the ninth anniversary. Nine years later. And she went to... She had, you had never been there before, correct? Right. And she went to where we, you know, all of you know of uh, our meeting with uh, Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji in this ashram in the foothills of the Himalayas. You also know because I speak of the resident saint who took, he left to take care of us, his quote unquote children, because we were in our 20s when he left. Uh, Siddhima is her name, and she takes care of a number of his ashrams and so Mirabai went to uh, to see her, to obviously connect with her about her child. And uh, what I love is just this whole reference to, because you had never had the experience of being in India with a saint, quote unquote, right? No, I'd been on my way my whole life. Was mm. you know I was on my way for this moment. So she gets there, and of course people are bowing down and touching her feet and so on and she, uh, this is where I love this moment because, and I've told this on the, on Mind Rolling before touch somebody's feet? What the heck is that about, right? Whatever was going through your head? Well, because you know I mean I'd been on this devotional path for a long time my ma- name is Mirabai for God's sakes but I was also a professor of philosophy for 20 years and had cultivated quite a healthy um, skepticism hmm well, the same thing happened to me, cause, and, and right. this is my story going to India and meeting Swami Muktananda, and Ram Das was there, and I was like, who can touch feet? This is ridiculous. I'm not touching anybody's feet. Why would anybody do that? He, well, it's the divine in you, you know, appreciating the divine in him or some bullshit as far as I was concerned. And if you have a problem with it, it's good work for you. Neither right. things rang with me at all, and I said, well, I'll mm-hmm. try again. And I went back the next day and... Nothing. Just couldn't. I had no relationship with it whatsoever. And then two days later, I was uh, literally two days later, I was sitting, waiting for Maharaji to come out. There was five of us sitting around his tucket, and he the doors burst open. I felt so f- hard on my head, hitting the floor in front of his feet. There wasn't mm. even a thought about it. Mm. And then, so I realized that. When it happened to you. Well, if you hand me the book, may I just read a couple of lines? Absolutely. About that? Um, Okay. So, philosophically, I did not really approve of the practice of bowing to another human being. The age of the guru is over, I had preached. This is a time of collective awakening, of mutual empowerment. We are the ones we've been waiting for, etc., etc. But the urge to pranam before this elderly being who was revered as a saint overrode my opinion on the matter. Oh, just this once, I thought, just to see what it's like. Here is what it was like. It was like becoming snowmelt and flowing down a mountainside into a waiting lake. It was like meeting 10,000 years of Vedic history in my own body. 
It was like finding a cave in the snow where a fire is burning and a kettle of stew is simmering. It was ordinary and holy and utterly appropriate. That is so fantastic. Mm. I can't tell you. I mean, I, of course, you're a writer. It's mm. a good thing you can describe that kind of a deal because that's <laughs> right, right on. Absolutely right on. It's just pouring of pouring into pouring. It's just pouring together. That's what happens. Mm. Um, now, you know, it's something that happens without any effort. It's not something that to look for. It's impossible. It's like looking for a guru. There is no looking for a guru. The guru will find you. And uh, in this case, Neem Karoli Baba has found tens of thousands of people without a body. So the, the whoever it is, uh, I, we have said this over and over and over. It's not necessary. Maharaji said it. It's not necessary to meet the guru in a body. But that same kind of pouring into each other is happens through the mystic, just the mystic poetry of Mirabai. You can mm, you can just go through that door. It's you don't darshan. need anything. It's yeah. so true, Raghu. The, reading the poetry of the mystics of all traditions, yeah. Hafiz, Sufi, Rumi, yeah. Saint Teresa, you know, and that's what uh, it's wonderful. This work that you're doing, really, to bring forth Thank the you. Christian mystics, and so everybody. Um, I'm going to read the title again. <laughs> Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation, Mirabai Star. And you can go, go to Amazon and go through BeHereNowNetwork.com, okay? And plug in there. I've told you all before, it's an opportunity to help support the network by buying the book. We get a little piece of it, and you just get, and you don't put it in your browser. You put it in your bookmark menu. I keep making a mistake about that, Mirabai. Mm -hmm. And also the St. John of the Cross uh, translation, Dark Night of the Soul, also something fantastic to have um, because that's a common experience for anybody who's been on the spiritual path. I mean, it's just part of the process. It really, really is. goes with the territory. Yeah, so, and Mirabai website, people can reach you at mirabaistar.com. Yeah, that's right. M-I-R-A-B-A-I-S-T-A-R-R dot com, right? And Mirabai tours a lot, so you can go up there. Your, your schedule's up there, right? It is. And people can uh, visit with you uh, wherever you are. And uh, do, you, do you actually, uh, when people write you about, uh, especially around some of these issues, do you respond? I do respond. Nice. I spend a lot of time responding. Okay. So go ahead. Anybody who wants to, I mean, this is uh, somebody who has uh, great wisdom around dealing with uh, grief and transformation, so... Thank you, Mirabai. Thank you, Raghu. It's a joy to be with you. Same here. Ram Ram. See you next week, everybody, on Mind Rowing.